Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. So Blake, where have you been? I know you were traveling again. Yes, yet again, my final trip for 2018. I was in New York last week for four days, uh, which is perfect because I got to experience Christmas in New York and now I'm back in LA. It's warm. I don't have to (laughs) deal with the rest of the winter. Uh, It was great. I was at two events. The first one was the CFO Argyle New York City One Day Conference spoke on behalf of Flowcast. And the second was the AICPA CIMA Finance Transformation event, which is, I think it's a two-day conference also in New York. I don't own a top coat. So basically I just took a lift uh, door to door and actually that worked. I didn't didn't have to go outside. Uh, I was there, but weeks before that and it was super super cold like i just yeah i, I, I think it's west coast boys are fragile i was 45 and there was wind i mean i went to college in chicago so i'm i'm not new to it but okay, uh, okay. Yeah, i didn't it, it was tough walking around in a suit without a proper coat uh, but again uh ride sharing saved me anyway i i do have an article actually that came out of the cfo argyle event that i'm happy to share with you and is this like a I mean, it came from the event, like there's a website or something. So I see, obviously CFO magazine, uh, there's a CFO.com website. This is from the magazine, which I picked up at the event. So Argyle is the parent company of CFO and they put on these free CPE events for high level managers, executives, CFO, finance people, uh, software vendors come and sponsor it. It's really nice. They do a really great job. Um, we must pay a lot of money. <laughs> uh, Throwback to the past, a real physical paper magazine. Yes. So I I picked up a physical paper magazine, which I haven't held in my hands in a little while. And I open it up and I see this article called Cloud ERP, The Time Has Come. This is in the November, December 2018 issue of CFO. Cloud ERP, The Time Has Come. Low upfront costs, hands-off maintenance, and automatic updates make cloud systems deserving of a serious look. And I was, of course, very excited to see this because I've been preaching cloud and cloud accounting, cloud ERP. And you, you, David, have been doing it far longer than even I. When would you say that you started? With, cl- like with cloud specifically? Like really, yeah, really preaching cloud. <sighs> really preaching, it was probably five, six years ago now. Okay. Maybe a little. I, there was that gray area where like you're still doing desktop and you're starting to get your feet wet in cloud and there's lots of overlaps. But then I, I think it was just all heads down maybe yeah. five and a half, six years ago. Okay, so five and a half, six years ago, I would say I would agree. That's when a lot of us early adopters went all in on cloud. And we said, we are no longer doing desktop. Well, it seems like in mid-sized enterprise, right, the type of companies where the CFOs, type of companies that have CFOs that read CFO magazine, they are starting to make that leap as well. So the early adopters are in on cloud ERP. For those who are not familiar with the acronym ERP, it means Enterprise Resource Planning. It is basically just fancy business systems that include accounting like NetSuite uh, and Sage Intact and Oracle and SAP, right? Those big, giant accounting and business operations tools. Everything goes in there. That is starting to hit mainstream. This article is great. Unfortunately, I couldn't find an online version of the article to link to, but I will include a picture of the spread in the magazine because the the article is great, but the featured image that they chose to represent this article is really unfortunate. It's a bunch of business people, and, and it looks like just people walking in the street, but on this sort of featureless plane of existence, they are casting shadows. You can't see their heads because their heads are completely, their upper bodies are completely enclosed 
by storm clouds or what could be smoke. I'm wondering if this uh, illustration, it's from Getty Images. I'm wondering if actually it was associated with smoking or vaping or something like that, because it, it doesn't give a pretty impression of the cloud, unfortunately. I think I saw it quickly. We took a photo of that graph and posted it, and I, I thought it was ostriches. It's just like legs sticking out of this bushy, you know, feathery cloud. Yeah, so uh, not the best imagery, but a great article. Get your hands on a copy of CFO Magazine. And there was one article, or I should say, there was one image in particular, a chart in the article that I thought was really interesting that I'd like to share with you. Uh, it's titled Offsite Exodus. The subtitle is, Which Best Describes Your Organization's Overall IT Approach and Strategy? And it's a survey of 931 technology professionals from this year, asking them, what is your focus? Is it on-premises or off-premises? And right now, now remember, this includes a lot of big businesses. The on-premises is about 60%, and the off-premises is about 40%. So 60% of IT professionals... 60% of organizations, I should say, are focusing on on-premises, only 40% on cloud, off-premises. Then they ask them, well, what's that going to look like in two years? Are you planning to switch that focus? And it completely inverts. 40% are on-premises, 60% are saying we're going to be off-premises. So that, to me, says that we are at the tipping point in cloud ERP in the bigger organizations. Same way that Five years ago, we hit that tipping point with cloud desktop in the small business market. Yeah, I think what's interesting about this question is I think it's it's asked in an open way. It's not asked in how many of you are going to move your servers or you're going to go off premise, right? It's really like, is this just your thought and your, your approach and strategy? Yeah. Right. And, 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 it's, and actually, it's not just accounting. It's not just accounting. It's, yeah. it's overall. Yeah. And, and I think it's. It's it's interesting that still 40% think in two years, their approach and strategy is still going to be on-premise. Like, well, you got to remember that this is a, it's a shift that takes time. Yeah. And it, it, enterprise folks, they do not move fast. Generally. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think it, if you don't say mentally is ready in a big enterprise, it could take two years just to accomplish it. Right. So, uh, I mean, the, the big takeaway here is me, you know, when, when it shifts to the majority uh, that are going off premises with their overall IT approach. That's 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 when the rest will pull get pulled along, right? Yep. Like it or not, it, it's it's coming. Like it or not. Like it or not. So that's what I uh, one of the, my takeaways from the uh, CFO Argyle conference. And I could, of course I could talk all about my trip, but I really would love to hear David what you have been reading over the past week or so. Since I got all caught up, I really only found three things. Um, and one's only almost a three. Only three? Only three. And one's almost a follow-up to last to last time. So we talked about last time, there was an article about how like blockchain, you know, may never deliver the promises in the accounting industry. So this is a podcast uh, from Oddlots, uh, Bloomberg Markets Oddlots podcast. And the title of the podcast is Why Blockchain May Never Benefit Corporations. It, it, it's very similar to that article. They go into a deep conversation about how there's just a lot of complications with small business, with small business, sorry, with uh, enterprise and just businesses uh, mm -hmm. adopting uh, blockchain. Oh, yeah. Um, and a lot of it's just a reconciliation versus the promises of blockchain versus the realities of uh, actually adopting it. But the one takeaway, which is interesting, is if you're working for a big company, 
you have to take or an accounting firm or what have you, you have to take the time to go learn about blockchain because you don't want to be the CEO or tech leader or CPA who didn't take the time to research it. And then tomorrow the whole industry changed and your whole firm is dead. So right now everybody's in that research phase and that's why everybody's talking about it and everybody's uh, educating themselves, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's coming or it's going to get implemented, but you can't afford not to educate yourself on it, if that makes any sense. And that's kind of the premise of that. But I would argue, I I wrote a note here. I'm like, this is a must listen. So everybody should uh, get to the show notes or search uh, for odd lots podcast and um, pick and definitely listen to this one. All right. Check that out. Well, Hey, speaking of fintech more broadly and, and blockchain, I found an article. It's called where top us banks are betting on fintech. And it's a summary of all of the investments that banks have been making in fintech startups over the last few years. I did not realize this, but actually uh, I, I thought that most U.S. banks were kind of sitting this out, but that couldn't be further than the truth. So they're not developing the technology themselves. They're actually you know, doing equity investments in startups. And the, the big takeaway is that in 2018, the top 11 U.S. banks by assets participated in a total of 49 equity rounds to fintech startups. That compares to 19 in 2017. So from 19 to 49 investments. And there's a chart in here that shows uh, all of the investments by bank, which is kind of interesting. Goldman Sachs has the largest number of investments. They're ranked first, followed by Citi, then JP Morgan Chase, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, B of A, PNC, TD, Bank, Capital One, BNY Mellon, and then US Bank Corp. It's very skewed, obviously, at Pi. Um, especially with Goldman Sachs, because I mean they lead people's um, IPOs, and they're they're kind of in that game a little differently. But the interesting ones, I think, are really your typical banks that you know the Wells Fargo's, the Bank of Americas, right? The ones that could get dis- that could get disrupted by you know these these uh, fintech startups, and the, the the fact that they're making those moves now. And a great example uh, is, of of an investment that is to head off that disruption is Chase investing. I think it was this was it this year or the year before they they recently invested in bill.com a lot of money uh, something like they led a round that involved 100 million dollars uh, with bill.com so you know people talking about bill.com disrupting banks well not really because both B of A and Chase are invested in bill.com glancing through this chart I see Wells Fargo invested in Canopy which is interesting because uh, it's it's really a tax play right yeah Canopy yeah, well, but you know, who, I mean, we, we were just talking last week about how Intuit and TurboTax are giving them access to all sorts of information that allows Intuit to become basically like a bank, right? So maybe that's a play for information. Yeah, and I saw the um, another article this week that was teeny, but I saw the, I didn't actually bring it up, but uh, there's one interesting quote that of the top uh, twelve banks, the vast majority of small businesses do business at those banks. Mm-hmm. On, a, on, a day, yeah. on a day-to-day basis, they're just moving volumes of transactions through them, and those banks hardly give them any loans right? at all. It, they, they just aren't even tapping their own data and their own customer base. It's, it's really interesting how disconnected um, these bigger banks are from small business owners. Yeah, it's really weird. Like, and, and I think one of the reasons that small business owners use these banks, you know, I use B of A. I would always tell my customers if they didn't have a local bank that they should just go with Chase. Because, and the reason I did that was because the online banking tools were excellent. Right. It was easy for me as the accountant to get the information I needed, easy for them to do what they needed to do. So the, the online banking is excellent with the big banks, but they just haven't caught, they haven't added, you know, the, the figured out how to do the lending thing online very well. 
you know, perhaps some of these investments will help that happen. For instance, City is invested in Bluevine. I didn't know that. Uh, that's one of those lending platforms that you can access through QuickBooks, right? Yep. And it's very small business focused. Yep. Small business focused loans. Yeah. Uh, Chase is invested in Square. So is Goldman. So is City. <laughs> They're all invested in Square. Interestingly, Goldman is invested in Oscar, Oscar Health. So that's uh, insurance, health insurance. I could see as these companies grow, as perhaps they go public, being invested in these companies will help uh, these banks figure out how to integrate their services into their online platforms. Yeah, because I, I look at how City has um, an investment in Plaid and uh, so does Goldman Sachs. And Plaid, Plaid can provide like bank feed data to other developers. Mm-hmm. It's kind of that who's working on APIs right now, City, Chase, right? Where they yep. want to, so they want to build their own internal API. So some of the, some of these types of investments could eventually turn into an acquisition just for talent um, and head down on their paths. It, it's funny. So as you see an article like this, I think I saw uh, T-Mobile just created a bank. I don't know if you saw that. No, you can I get didn't. a checking account now through T-Mobile. Um, huh. You can take photos of your checks. You can do deposits. It's all mobile banking through T-Mobile. And so it's just as like last year we were talking about Intuit becoming a bank, possibly T-Mobile could become a bank. Um, I think like Starbucks, Google, Apple, they all could become banks. Wow. So it's, it's interesting to see. And maybe that explains why these investments these banks are making are so diverse because they just don't know where they're going to be soon. Yeah. Well, it totally makes right. sense to what me. What defines a bank? Yeah, it totally makes sense to me that a mobile phone company would become a bank. If you look at uh, emerging economies, a lot of people in Africa, for instance, don't have access to banking, so they do it through their mobile phone, through apps on their phones, and that's how they store and, and send money. So, totally makes sense. Maybe some, maybe they'll figure out how to crack it here for folks who are underbanked in the U.S. All right, so banks are important. Let's talk about us. So this is about just us as people, right? Uh, this is from Net- NetworkAlliance.com. I have an article. And the title of the article is You're Too Important for Multi-Factor Authentication. This is uh, November 27th, 2018. The premise is all of us are like overscheduled. We're overbooked. We're just so, so important that we don't have time for 12 and a half, 20 seconds to do a multi-factor authentication. Uh, I kind of get it. Like... Now that I've really set up every single site on multi-factor authentication, it's kind of a pain. Like I gotta pull up my phone, I gotta go and get the code, I have to type in the code when I sign in the site. Like I get it. But um, the way to think, there's a great quote in this article that uh, is a way to think about this. 25 times a day, you have to use multi-factor authentication, maybe 10 or 10 times after hours. So you're looking at about 35 times a day. That's basically six minutes of your 1400 minute day. And if you ever get hacked or you ever have a problem mm-hmm. because of being hacked, that's going to take up way more than six minutes of your day. Yeah. And so it's, it's an interesting premise. The other thing is it has but a David, really good... Here's, um, here's the thing, David. I, I totally understand your argument. I also experience the frustration of dealing with multi-factor. Uh, here at Flowcast, we use Okta, which is a multi-factor tool, single sign-on tool. Yep. And in order for me to log into my everything every day... I have to pull out my phone and put in a multi-factor authentication code the first time I log in. And if I, I can check a box that says, don't prompt me to do this for another 12 hours, but I, then I have to do it 12 hours later. So basically every day I have to do it. And it's a, I don't know, I just hate it. <laughs> like first thing, you know, I've got my coffee, I'm ready to work. Uh, gotta, where's my phone? You know, gotta go find it. The problem is that people are too lazy to even come up with unique passwords. Like we can't even get them to use password managers which is super easy. 
because it's almost automatic at this point, right? I don't know. I I'm I feel like like human laziness is the biggest barrier to security right now. So you say it's it's not people thinking they're too important, they don't have the time, it's just they're just lazy fundamentally. Yeah, well, That's they it. justify it by saying I'm too important, you know, like especially executives are like, "Oh, I'm not going to deal with that crap. I need to get work done." Of course, and then they're the biggest security hole because they're the ones who get fished. So one thing, there's a good tip in here about like, you don't have to do it cold turkey. Just do it to your Facebook profile. Start with that. And then from there, start putting it on, putting other sites on it. Um, so here's the other problem. My problem with multi-factor and, and in particular, these authenticator forms of multi-factor where you scan the QR code and then you get a code in your phone and you have to type in the code and it, it changes every minute. The problem with that is, Every time you get a new phone, you have to set all that up again, which is not a problem when you've only got one site that you use it for, right? But when you have 10 sites that you've got multi-factor authentication codes for and you get a new phone, you have to go in and reset your multi-factor authentication on every single website that you use it for. It's like whoever invented this didn't think about the gigantic hassle that creates. Well, that might be uh, a security feature because I think... If I remember correctly, I used to be able to have it running on my tablet and my phone, like Microsoft Authenticator yeah, yeah. or um, Google Authenticator, and my codes right. would just show up on both. And now I can't even install it on my other device when it's on the one device. Like, there's no like uh, account migration transfer syncing right. of some type. And there might be a, a reason for that because if I guess if you could, somebody could right. spoof yeah, you. Yeah, no, definitely. Codes, but still, right? like, it's just it's not it's not a scalable solution because. Ultimately, the ideal situation would be that every single website, that every single password that we use also is associated with one of those multi-factor authentication codes. But then if you ever got a new device, it would just be the biggest hassle in the world to, to update everything. It, I don't think it's an ultimate, I don't think it works as a final solution. Ultimately, the only thing that's going to get people to actually do real multi-factor for the important things that they log into every day is biometrics. But that'll be I'm too busy to put my eyeball up against something. That's ridiculous. <laughs> or donate blood. I got the uh, iPhone XR, and it has the facial recognition. And I was very skeptical as to whether or not that would be any good if I would actually care versus, you know, having to put in a passcode. So much better. It's amazing. It works so fast. And if somebody can figure out how to do that for, like, a retina scan that's more secure than just the facial recognition thing, like then it's great. I'll just hold up my phone to my eyeball and that can be my signature and nobody can fake that. Well, hopefully that works a lot more reliably than those uh, infrared sinks <laughs> and paper towel dispensers <laughs> at the airports because like, like I put my hands in there and they just never, never seem to work. But yeah, like I put my son on it um, because I get notified when there's a login to his Gmail account, right? From some of the location, it could be scored, God knows where. And I always have to text him like, is this you this time? And so I put him on it, installed the app. And I've had this now like ease to know, knowing that, you know, it's him when he's logging yeah. in. I don't have to monitor it as closely. So, so I think there's, there's a, it's, if, if, if an 11 year old can do it, I think uh, everybody can do it. How can how can partners in accounting firms or IT folks like how can they actually convince everybody to to do multi-factor authentication and and not become the bad guy for making everybody do this huge hassle? How do you sell it? I think you maybe you educate them on their own personal accounts first to where they like you said get them to use it on their Facebook, you know, their Twitter, um, 
their personal Gmail, because chances are like if you can just get them to secure their personal stuff, like that's already eliminating right. some risk at your company, right? Because everybody's checking their personal stuff on your company's network or on possibly your company's devices. So if you can get them to do it with their personal stuff first, um, they'll start doing it for other I things at, at your company, I think. And until somebody gets really hacked or has suspicion that, wait a second, somebody mm-hmm. logged in, they're usually not going to do it. So that's another thing. You could pretend to fake hack all your employees. <laughs> we're, and then they'd be like, oh, We're, we're trying to not become the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> freak everyone well, out and uh just it's, it's like just it help i mean you got that it's yeah. effective right if you scare somebody you can get oh, them yeah, to do things so you can make everybody get really scared that they got hacked and they're like, just kidding but you should probably get some multi-authentication so this is an act <laughs> in the future <laughs> i love it all right we we beat that story to death okay i got a story here so this is called have the big four lost their advantage in accounting today by ranica aerosmith And it asks the question, have the big four lost their advantage when it comes to audit? It's based on a recent paper called Information Technology in an... Oh, that's such a boring title. I'm not even going to say it. Anyway, uh, it appeared in the Journal of Information Systems, which is a a magazine even more boring than the Journal of Accountancy. Uh, So I hear. And it finds that big four auditors are today not significantly more likely to use information technology than non-big four auditors, suggesting that the dominance of the big four firms' use of IT has lessened. And so the question is, are mid-sized regional firms going to close the gap between the big four, given that they no longer have an advantage with tech? Uh, Interestingly, local firms are not really catching up. But I mean, local firms, they don't do a lot of audits these days, do they? No, I don't think so. So my question is, I think we had an article months ago talking about, and I think EY was going to spend, you know, $200 billion on cloud technologies or something, right? Maybe it's $200 million, not $200 billion, right? Uh, Where's all this money going if if they're not investing in technology? Well, I I think they are. It's just, you know, it's going to take a little while for them to see the results. Um, but, But actually, no, you make a good point. I think that when it comes to audit, most of the technology that the big four are investing in is not actually going to pan out. It's not really going to help that much necessarily. I mean, people are talking about, oh, if we figure out how to integrate IBM Watson or AI into our audits, then we can eliminate all these personnel. Well, the fact remains that you still got to have people on the ground in the office doing the audit simply because there's no substitution for in-person interviews or going through actual files if there are files. Uh, seeing people in person is a really important in, in figuring out if there's fraud going on, which is you know part of the audit, right? You gotta you gotta be looking for it. So we we it's pretty clear that information technology is democratizing, right? I as a independent CPA now have access to all these tools that make me able to compete with larger accounting firms. Right, they have all these staff. It used to be you had to have an office because you had to have all these people running around pushing paper. Right, we we don't have that anymore. I think the same principle applies when it comes to audit. It, you might be able to, as a smaller audit firm, regional firm, just do the same work that a big firm is doing, leveraging the cloud to make up for your lack of people. Right, you just don't have a bunch of people to throw at the problem. And I don't know. This makes sense to me. I'd be interested to hear what our listeners think about this. It's the smaller, more nimble firms who can implement. Technology, they could use a startup app. Um, they could use things like Canopy's tool, right? And way faster than these big, the yeah. big four can. 
Right. So, so, so yeah, this, it, I believe the argument on this is correct. Um, I, I think the title is very link bait, right? Like they've lost their advantage, but I, I think well, this is, yeah. Uh, and, and yeah if you think about it, like the, the advantage that the big four have isn't really technology. And I don't think it has been for a while. It's simply that they have the massive workforce to be able to do huge audits that no regional firm could ever handle. They're not going to, a regional firm is never going to be able to audit a global, you know, multinational Fortune 500 company. And when when half of our yep. economy is dominated by something like 3,000 businesses, those 3,000 companies are going to have to go to the big four to audit them. There's nobody else that's that big that can do it. Uh, what do I have? A, I have a, a good one that's um, very uh, tangent to us, but not really about our, our industry. But it's from thehill.com. So I'm getting to politics here. Uh-oh. Uh, so the title of this article is America Needs More Accountants in Congress. I think we can all agree with that. I maybe possibly. Uh, we'll see. So she had, uh, she quoted some really, really, uh, the author quotes some really good stats in here. Um, currently, lawyers make up 40% of the newly elected Congress. But lawyers only make up 0.4% of the entire U.S. population. Oh, God. So our representatives are not representative of us, right? Well, I think I, Dave, I just think you just explained all the dysfunction in our in our Congress right there. That's it. That's the problem. We just need to set a threat. We need to set like a ceiling on the lawyers that can be in Congress. Yeah. And we should really there should be a tow truck driver. There should be plumber. Like maybe maybe we should really go representative of, of all the professions because her argument is the key requirement for lawmakers is budgeting. They're, they're collecting $3.3 trillion in taxes and spending $4 trillion, and none of them have any experience. <laughs> anyone, anyone who's done accounting for a law firm knows that lawyers are the last people that you should have making a budget. <laughs> are they, they bad clients they're, they're good. as an accountant? Well, have. I don't want to get into it, but <laughs> let's just say that uh, if you go to anybody who serves the legal profession uh, in accounting, you will get some interesting responses. Yeah, so there's some more scary stats about this. So she goes on to talk about its largest financial institution in the world, right? But then she's like, so of all the 535 voting members between the House and the Senate, only 11 have received professional training as accountants. There's more medical professionals, 30, and more pilots, professional pilots, 12, than there are accountants in Congress. It is no wonder that the national debt continues to rise year after year. That's exactly sense. Exactly. So, how do we get more accountants in Congress? You can run, Blake. <laughs> like, you seem well-rounded. That seems like a, a, a way to go. I, I don't know how to get more in, but I also, like, I think the bigger question is, is, like, she, she poses this question. It's not, she doesn't pose it as a question, but she makes a statement at the end. Like, basically, if Congress had 214 accountants instead of 214 lawyers, um, there'd be comprehensive reviews of some of the accounting rules that have not been updated for more than 50 years. But my question really to you, Blake, for you asked me how to get accountants in Congress is like, so you know how accountants run their firms and you know how accountants do things. What would happen to Congress if we had 215 accountants? I, I think it would be a lot more civil. That's for sure. That's true. Yeah. Accountants are nice people generally. I mean, at least compared to attorneys, I'm not afraid to say that. Well, I think for instance, did we talk about the Pentagon audit? On any of these episodes, I don't think we've talked about that. 
No, because I, I felt it was so oh ridiculous. Well, so <laughs> we could we could yeah, talk about well, that. Well, just a brief mention of it. Um, and all uh, the the Pentagon went through its first ever comprehensive audit this year and failed miserably. And if there were 214 accountants instead of 214 lawyers in Congress, you can bet that that audit would have been completed a long time ago, and that we wouldn't be allowing the Pentagon to get away with plugging holes in their financial statements with bullshit numbers. It's it's insane, actually, how bad the accounting is over at the Department of Defense. Do you think it would be harder to pass budgets and things? Because everybody would be meticulously looking at every single line. Like, lawyers are out there negotiating. Like, all right, I'll sneak yeah. this in. I'll accept that guy's I, I thing here. But the accountants... I, I like, think that's a good thing because that's really, honestly, one of the few things that Congress still does is pass the budget. Every All this other stuff has been delegated to bureaucracies. Right, all the all the actual decision making. So, yeah, they haggle about the budget. We should have accountants in there. That's 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 my take. Thank you for sharing this, David. So, I, I, the one thing for me personally, I believe. Okay, so I, I'm going to jump on this bad way and let's get some more accountants in office. But I actually feel like we really need just more people that understand tech. If you, if you watch those Facebook <laughs> hearings, like it's very it's very scary. Like we have leaders that do not understand any tech at all. Yeah. And that's very, very scary. So I guess if we're going to put accountants in, we want cloud accountants to be in we the need Congress. Cloud, yeah. can, we, can, can I only support cloud accountants in, uh, to be in Congress, people that let's understand try, tech? Let's try to get one. Let's find one. If you are a, a cloud accountant and you want to run for Congress, let us know and, and David and I will help uh, <clears throat> lobby for you. Well, it's not called lobbying. It's What do you call it when you try to help somebody get elected? Uh, you can, you can't canvas for them. you. So... so uh, Canvas. I would go knock yeah, on some doors. I, I would do that. And help but only you if out. I can do it virtually in, in the cloud. <laughs> virtually. I mean, you'll make some phone calls. Yes. The, it'd be interesting. Let's track down these 11 accountants and, and put them out there on Twitter. I wonder who these I've, 11 are. They, sh- they, they should, should be recognized. Be. Um, hopefully it doesn't turn out they're the ones causing all the problems. So. Yeah. yeah, the, the, yeah okay. <laughs> we'll run that premise. Well, we'll move on. So a few more <laughs> stories just to finish, out, uh, finish this up. Uh, Speaking of government, the state of Ohio says that you can now pay taxes with Bitcoin. (laughs) I know. I I brought this in here, David, because I know uh, you love Bitcoin and you love talking about it. And I thought it was interesting. This is a story in the Wall Street Journal called Pay Taxes with Bitcoin. Ohio says, sure. Basically, Ohio has set up a website called OhioCrypto.com. That's OhioCrypto.com, where you can register and pay everything from cigarette sales taxes to employee withholding taxes with Bitcoin. Uh, That's for businesses only at this point. Eventually, it will expand to individual filers. It's the initiative of Treasurer Josh Mandel, who has held the office in Ohio since 2011 and started taking an interest in Bitcoin several years ago. And guess what? He's only 41 years old, so... He actually knows what Bitcoin is. So I, th- I congratulate him for this. I no, think it's kind of cool. It's very forward thinking. Um, is this kind of a play to get people that maybe are in, because a lot of Bitcoin's been used for illegal businesses, that just get, it's that whole like, hey, if you're doing something illegal, at least still pay your taxes. Like, like don't do two yeah. illegal things, right? So is this kind of a way to get people that maybe are doing some illegal things on the dark web to just, you know, pay their share so they don't, you know, they don't get in trouble for tax fraud as well? Yeah, I'm curious to know if that's at all part of this. And I, I wonder if it will work at all because, yes, if you have been making profits in Bitcoin, you 
probably haven't been paying your taxes like you should because it's so difficult and most people don't even know that they need to do it. And uh, if you went and you paid your Ohio taxes in Bitcoin, maybe you'd open yourself up to a whole lot of trouble because now they know who you are. Yeah, so we'll have to uh, watch yeah, this article. I'm gonna keep, I'll keep you updated on this, David. And then I think you had one more fun thing. Yeah, last one. Uh, well, I was working remotely last week from New York, and I saw this article in uh, on CNBC called 70% of people globally work remotely at least once a week, study says. And yes, that is the stat. A study released Tuesday by Zug, a Switzerland-based service office provider, found that 70% of professionals work remotely uh, at least one day a week, while 53% work remotely for at least half of the week. And uh, more that means that more than two-thirds of people around the world work away from the office at least once every week, according to this study. And this is real work, right? Not pretend work like the working from home. I'm putting air quotes up here for everybody so you can see it's, them. I'm working from home. It, it's a survey. So hopefully it's not a, uh, people aren't misrepresenting themselves uh, in anonymous surveys. It, it was a survey of 18,000 business professionals across 96 international companies for that study. So this is an international study. It's not just the U.S. market. They do mention... I mean, St- Starbucks would know. Yeah. They, they could uh, audit their logs. They would know this for they, sure. They do mention a U.S. Uh, Gallup survey done um, last year that found that American employees working remotely rose to 43% in 2016 from 39% in 2012. <clears throat> of course, that doesn't mean they're working remotely all the time, just at least part of the time. So it's kind of, it's a lot of workers that are working remotely. Bill.com founder, Rene Lassert, I think a few years back, I saw him say this on stage once, the leash is longer, but the noose is tighter, Mm -hmm. right? You kind of have this freedom to work everywhere you want, but the noose around your neck is just tighter. Like you you constantly have to work. (laughs) Well, that's true. And so, yeah, absolutely. And and the thing is that uh, all these people are working remotely part of the time, but only a small percentage of the U.S. workforce gets to actually work remotely full time if they want. Only three, something like three to four million people in the U.S. work 100% remote. Everybody else has to still have an office that they go to. So it's it's weird. Like I think companies want to have it. Uh, they want to have their cake and eat it too, and that they want their employees, like you said, to be working all the time. <laughs> so they let them work. They give them the tools to work remotely, but then they're afraid to let them work at home all the time. I think, I don't know, this is going to change. I think we're going to see a lot more people working remotely 90% of the time, all the time, as we move into 2030. 2030, wow. Really, well, you're, you're done with 2020. You're projecting out to 2030 now. Like you jumped a whole decade. <laughs> I, I, wow. I'm thinking long term here, but, uh, but yeah, my 2019 prediction is that that trend continues. That's all I got. Awesome. I'm, on that note, we've uh, covered all the news this week. Um, if those of you that want to hear about all the news next next week, be sure you subscribe so you can hear this every week automatically in your favorite podcast player. Oh, David, um, I'm so sorry any, to interrupt you, but yeah. could you start that again? Because I heard you thumping stuff. Oh, sorry. I was I was physically hitting my hand on the desk <laughs> like to tell people to subscribe. So I don't know if you should cut that out or not. But I like, mean, like, yes, people. I'm banging my hand on the desk. That's how much, David. Don't forget to subscribe for next week. Yeah, that's how much he wants it. All right. Well, uh, that's great. Yeah. Um, wait, did we say where they can reach us on Twitter? I'm at Blake T. Oliver. 
and I'm at David Leary. So if you have any comments about any of these articles, you have a new article, you have thoughts. If, you, if you're one of these magical 11 accountants that are in Congress, please tweet at us. We'd love to figure out who you yep. are. Uh, have a great week, David. And a cloud accountant for 2020. Bye. Bye, Blake.